the hosts of Fang Theory are not experts in any of the subjects discussed, and nothing they say should be taken as advice or expertise. Fang Theory is not affiliated with Summit Entertainment, Little Brown and Company, or anything to do with the Twilight franchise. We are merely fans, here to have some fun and apply vigorous amateur research to the world of our favorite vamps. Quick aside before we get started, if you can't tell by the sound of my voice right now, the audio issues are contagious, huh? Huh? and I'm using headphones this week, so my apologies in advance for the decline in audio quality. Hello everyone, welcome to Fang Theory, I'm Paige. And I'm Hannah. Today we're talking Venom, specifically how it turns people into vampires. <laughs> Let's get into it. Get yeah. into it, yeah. Which we need to specify that's how we're talking about Venom because it's sort of the catch-all in the Stephanie Meyer vampire lore for why vampire thing is funky. <laughs> yeah, she really decided to use that as just a blanket, huh? Yeah, so stay tuned. This is definitely not going to be the only episode we talk about Venom. But I will say today, maybe a little triggering because of the gestures broadly so (laughs) if you don't want to hear a lot about viruses maybe skip this one listen to it in a year or hopefully by the year (laughs) or if somehow you manage to get through this past year without learning what a virus is maybe this will be good for you there you go maybe maybe it's an inoculation yeah (laughs) all right so in order to see why we're talking about viruses today first i'm going to tell you a little bit about how venom works as a transformative substance okay hit us so very basically if you missed this in watching all of twilight the way people become vampires is a vampire bites them And venom enters through the open wound created by the bite and moves through the bloodstream, changing each body part as it goes, which is very painful. But as we know from Twilight, as in the first book and movie, this process can be reversed if you act quickly and take out any blood that's already been contaminated with venom. But... The tearing of the skin by a vampire bite will always scar differently because it was a bite with venom on it. Which makes sense because like a burn will scar differently than like a paper cut. Yes, I hope your paper cuts don't scar. <laughs> well, yeah, that that would be a different story overall, yeah. But I see what you mean. It's like a specific type of wound and yeah. it's almost like um Actually, I was going to say it scars like vampire skin, but that's actually not true because Jasper has venom scars that are visible on his vampire skin. So I take that back. Yeah. Um, 
And I guess that I should just clear this away for anyone who's wondering, but um, you can pee on a person who has been bitten like <laughs> it's a jellyfish sting. I mean, yes, you can you can pee on them, but I don't know that it's going to have the effect you're looking for. <laughs> you can pee on people. <laughs> you can pee on people. Um, so I think it's probably important that I describe what exactly a virus is. Yeah, you want to Just a little important. Yeah. So I think first and foremost, it's really um, important to distinguish that a virus is not a living organism. Biologists at least don't classify it as a living organism. Maybe if you're a philosophy major, your answer is different to that. Who knows? But biologists do not consider them living. However, just because they're not living does not mean they don't have genetic code. They do have genetic code. And it can come in the form of DNA or RNA. A virus also has like a coding on it, um, a protein coding. And it's through this protein coding that allows it to attach to host cells. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. A virus will essentially inject its DNA or RNA into a host cell. And that's what infects the cell. The host cell will then use that injected DNA or RNA and make copies. And because of because this genetic code is foreign to the host cell, when it starts to make copies, it'll completely disrupt the, the process within the host cell and um, and it'll die. Very sad. Rip. So viruses are different from bacteria. And in order to illustrate why, I want to tell you a little bit about how we discovered viruses. I also just think it's a fun story. So we knew about bacteria first. And in the 19th century, it was actually tobacco farmers in the Netherlands who noticed that the leaves of the tobacco plant were turning a, quote, mottled dark green, yellow, and gray. And it killed like 80% of the tobacco crops on any given field. And it spread between fields really quickly. Oh, no. So a Dutch plant pathologist named Adolf Meyer, not Stephanie Meyer. It's like Mayer. (laughs) (laughs) Like John Mayer. Oh, God, it is like John Mayer. Oh, no. (sighs) Disappointing. Anyway. So because, you know, this is the 19th century, tobacco is a really big cash crop. You don't say. Yeah. (laughs) And um, Mr. Mayor started researching the disease in 1879, and he called it tobacco mosaic disease. And he ran Cook's test, spelled like the um, Cook brothers, right? (laughs) I thought it's pronounced Coke. Oh, you know what? Little aside, my stepmother's maiden name is Cook, spelled the same way. So I don't know. It, I think it could be Cook or Coke. I always, I always called them the Coke brothers. I think they are the Coke brothers, but I think I missaid it because of how my um, stepmother's family pronounces it. Oh, okay. So anyway, Cook or Coke, depending on how, you, depending on how Dutch you are, I guess, or I don't know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Cook-Coke's test is a test developed by a pathologist named Robert Cook or Coke, 
in the 1880s, which is how he discovered that bacteria causes tuberculosis. Uh, <laughs> wow, that just a bit of a significant discovery. Yeah, you know, just a little aside. Yeah. But Mayer, when he ran this test, he couldn't see anything under the microscope. Hmm, suspicious. So then in 1887, a botanist in Crimea, and forgive me, Dmitry Ivanovsky, started researching tobacco mosaic disease, and he tried to use like a really fine filter to figure out what caused it. So fine that bacteria wouldn't fit through. But when he poured the sap of a sick tobacco plant through the filter and put the filtered sap on a healthy plant, the healthy plant still got sick. Which led a third scientist, <laughs> <laughs> which, which is why we need to talk about science as collaborative. It's not individual geniuses. Everyone's working together. But anyway, that's another story. Thank you, col- thank you con- Comrade Page. Yes. Third microbiologist. And now we're back to the Netherlands. And um, forgive me, Holland, Bayernik, Bayernik, I'll put it in the description. Third microbiologist repeats Ivanovsky's experiment, and he comes to the conclusion that there has to be a disease or a disease-causing parasite that's smaller <sighs> than bacteria, and he is the person who coins the word virus. I don't know how he did it. But he gave it a name that fits it so well. Oh, I didn't write it down because I didn't think you were going to be interested in it. But there was a reason he picked the word virus. Oh. Uh, I'll put it in the description too. How or, could you, Paige? I am extremely interested in etymology. Okay. Well, now we're pausing the episode and I'm Googling. <laughs> ah, it comes from Latin for poison. <gasps> that's good. That's good. So... I mean, true. (laughs) Also, poison is a synonym for venom, so that works for us. Oh, true. (gasps) Wait, so our our working title for this outline, Venom as Virus, is Poison as Poison? (gasps) Yes. Oh my god. (laughs) Although, I mean, if we're going to get really in the weeds with etymology, vampires are venomous because their bite makes you sick. They would be poisonous if when you ate them, they killed you. Nom nom nom. <laughs> nom nom for us, David. <laughs> okay, so we have three scientists all working together and using the work of other scientists, right? Like Cook Coke's test. So Biernik, or however you say it, if you are good at Dutch, doesn't really understand a virus like as a disease-causing parasite yet. He's just identified that there is something smaller than a bacteria which causes diseases, which sounds like the same thing, but it's not. So Biernik is close, but he has a lot of details that we've now debunked. Like, for example, technically virus means liquid, Hmm. like poison is a liquid, and we know now that they're particles. Mm -hmm. But the idea that it's smaller than a bacteria and causes disease is obviously true. But the idea still doesn't catch on for some time still until the 20th century when biologist Francis Holmes, we now have a fourth scientist, (laughs) proves that viruses are discrete particles in 1929. 
1935, chemist Wendell M. Stanley, quote, created a crystallized sample of the virus that could be visualized with x-rays. And being able to see a virus goes a long way. And we don't get photographs of the virus until 1941. And in a nice full circle moment, the first photographs of the virus are of the tobacco mosaic virus, the virus that started it all. Oh, wow. That's real. That's I like that full circle moment. I do too. And um, that was because in 1941, we had the invention of a powerful electron transmission microscope. That makes sense. So basically, it took almost a century. And like, at least six scientists. <laughs> you know what? That's just the name of the game, though. Yeah. And I mean, like, obviously, we had senses of these other things before then, like everyone before the 1940s was aware of tuberculosis and that it was bad and <laughs> that like people who got sick could get other people sick. Like we had all these things. What we didn't have was like the distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Between a bacteria and a virus or like that it's a par- particle, not a liquid. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say that there are some other scientists on here, which I didn't even name, but you know, from centuries, from many cultures, Science is a collaboration. Yes. Keep that in mind, people. Hot take. <laughs> Geisel, UCSD's library, for those of you who do not know, looks like a virus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, UCSD. So you might be wondering, how does a virus infect a host? Because clearly it's like not the same as a bacteria. I hope that's clear at this point. Um, to be honest with you, I actually don't know how bacteria infect a host, but... That's not the point of the episode. We can come back to that another day if it becomes relevant. Sure. I mean, if we wanted like a very quick rundown, bacteria are kind of more like like when you go to war with someone and you're battling it out, right? Whereas mm-hmm. a virus will essentially just swallow you up. Oh, goodness. Mm. Hmm, I don't love that. Bacteria also have certain functions that are like similar to viruses, but again, we don't really need to go into it. So the way that a virus, and and we talked briefly about it earlier, but the way that a virus enters the body is it can enter through respiratory passages, <coughs> wear your masks, people, uh, open wounds, like a vampire bite, <gasps> and sometimes insects. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not a fun, it's not a fun thing to visualize. It's not a fun thing to think about. So we'll, we'll just gloss over that a little bit. <laughs> no, if I had to read that quote, everyone else has to read that quote. Read us the quote, please. Okay, fine. I will read you the quote. <laughs> Certain viruses will <laughs> hitch a ride in an insect's saliva and enter the host's body after the insect bites. So we're talking like mosquitoes. Yeah. Yeah gross we love a carrier um (laughs) not not entirely related but i love reading people's horrific like reactions to that wasp that will like inject its eggs into ladybugs no 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 okay okay moving on moving on moving on (laughs) so then after so after the virus enters the body, it'll attach themselves, they will attach themselves to host cells, like we mentioned before. And the way that 
it attaches itself to a host cell is through the proteins on the outside. So as we discussed in previous episodes, cells and cellular membranes have receptors and these receptors will only recognize certain proteins. And so if the virus has proteins on its on its membrane that can match the receptors on the host cell like a puzzle, then it'll lock into that cell and that's when it'll have the opportunity to inject its DNA or RNA. Ooh, Hannah, so we talked about this already with like the, the right size and like a receptor has to be like the, the little for hormones, they have to be able to fit into the right receptor. And we're talking about a similar thing here, but this also maybe explains why vampires can't get sick. After venom, the receptors for our other viruses may be closed off. Hmm. That's a possibility. Yeah. It could also be. Well, maybe this is, maybe we could save this topic for a future episode. Mm, okay. But, like, this does give us um, a good segue into, like, exploring vampire immune systems. Do they have T-cells and, like, antibodies? Hmm. Maybe they just have a lot of them. Who knows? They do, after all, have more chromosomes than we do. <laughs> oh, God. Spoilers. <laughs> maybe, maybe the more chromosomes... Like encode for more antibodies and T cells. Who knows? White white yeah. blood cells. Who knows? I don't know. We'll have to think about it. Maybe maybe our opinions will change after we've discussed this episode. Maybe not. Anyway, yeah. possibly. You know, stay tuned. <laughs> so once a virus finds its way to bind with a cellular membrane, it can move across the surface. So, for example, um, HIV has is a virus with an envelope. And it'll fuse to uh, the membrane of a cell and it'll push through. So another enveloped virus, um, the influenza virus, is engulfed by the cell, like completely. Some non-enveloped viruses, such as the polio virus, create a porous channel in the cell membrane and will burrow. Like, uh, (laughs) I was going to say like a hedgehog. (laughs) I guess hedgehogs do burrow, but I I don't like that association, and I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> but it's not the animal I was thinking of. No, it is. When we try to like, you know, hedgehog day is a, a, a thing, right? Groundhog day. What are you <laughs> talking about? <laughs> I was gonna say it burrows like a groundhog. <laughs> it burrows like Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> I mean, I know you guys can't see my face, but I'm so horrified right now. <laughs> so moving on. Don't, Hannah, don't think I'm going to forget this, but yes, please move on. <laughs> listen, listen, I'm working off a of very little sleep at the moment. Fair enough. Okay. Would you say? Hedgehogs, groundhogs, they're all the same. Would you say they're the same, like everyday repeats, like Hedgehog Day? Okay. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go now. The rest of the episode will be just Paige. <laughs> Your favorite Bill Murphy movie? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, bye you guys. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> okay.
Okay, anyway. Moving on. Moving on. Viruses are kind of like parasites. No, 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 no. Um, I have it on good authority that they are parasites from Marissa. Shout out to Marissa, a microbiology student slash graduate. That's Oh. <laughs> so thank you to Marissa for this crucial information. Viruses are parasites. So viruses will release their genomes to, quote, ultimately produce viral proteins, many a time halting the synthesis of any RNA and proteins that the host cell can use. Now, for those of you who don't know, RNA is the reason why we have DNA replication of our own DNA, though. So if the virus injects their own genetic sequence into our cell and halts our RNA process, that means we cannot replicate our own DNA, which is how the virus DNA will take over. Mm. Oh, is anyone hearing it? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe why we've connected these two topics. (laughs) Paige, every time we brainstorm an idea for this podcast and having to read through some of the nonsense Stephanie Meyer I mean, sorry, not nonsense. Some of the genius that Stephanie Meyer um, has produced. Some of the sense. <laughs> some of the sense. Some of the common sense. It's common sense, really. Um, I always think of that that BuzzFeed Unsolved meme where mm-hmm. Shane and Ryan are like, <laughs> I've connected the dots. You haven't connected shit. That's I've connected them. <laughs> That's literally us. Because we're both Shane. Yes, except we're both Shane. <laughs> Listen, it's not our fault, okay? We're working with some very interesting material here. No, I think that's what makes it charming. If you're not here yeah. for some um, bold claims, then really, why are you here? <laughs> so, because the virus takes over all of the host cell's machinery, it can use everything that's in that cell to produce their own RNA and DNA. Sorry, to produce their own RNA from their DNA and build proteins, which will then replicate the virus. In many ways, it's like cancer as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess cancer sort of functions like a virus, except that it's not from someplace else. Mm-hmm. Right? It's internal. Yeah, I mean, essentially, they're ki- or they're very similar in that They are both basically caused by a knockout of our own DNA or Mm -hmm. rather a mutation in our DNA, except with the virus, it's a mutation that completely stops our DNA from functioning. Whereas in cancer, it's a mutation that will encode for more DNA or more cellular replication. But that's beside the point. Once the virus can accomplish this replication, it can also create conditions um, that make it easier for them to spread between cells and between hosts. So, for example, when when we have the common cold, a sneeze can emit like 20,000 droplets containing virus particles, which is why wearing a mask is very important. And so touching the or breathing those droplets in is, you know, all it, that is effectively all you need for a cold to spread. Right. And so, again, it's like these viruses will um, will populate themselves in 
bodily fluids because that's the ideal conditions for them to spread, right? So that brings us to how exactly venom will function like a virus in the vampire in the vampiric transformation process. I love the word vampiric. <laughs> Wait, why do you love the word so much? It just sounds fun. They also say it all the time in what we do in the shadows. And they say oh, it okay. in that stupid fake European accent where they're like, the vampiric, vampiric. council. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Everyone should watch what we do in the shadows. It does make it sound more like pompous. <laughs> that's totally why they say it, and that's also yeah, why exactly. I like it. <laughs> Um, it, I do appreciate vampires for their egos. Fair. I don't know how Edward does it, but he is simultaneously extremely egotistical and very down on himself. <laughs> well, okay, he thinks he's very powerful, but he thinks he's very powerful in a destructive way, which is true. And yes. so he he hates himself because he thinks he's so powerful. Which... Except he thinks he's like destructive because he thinks that like turning other humans into vampires is like evil but no he's actually destructive because he's stealing our oxygen oh <gasps> true <laughs> so oh God, you know Hannah. what maybe he should have low self-esteem i was just thinking about the part where he rips out that tree he stole a little more oxygen <gasps> that way oh my god <gasps> he did rip out that tree oh my god edward <laughs> Ed- okay, I am completely convinced that Edward is just like very like anti-environmentalist. I know he did a deforestation. Yeah. <laughs> like a granted it was like a micro scale deforestation, but it was deforestation on the Forest Hannah. <laughs> it was deforestation. So disclaimer, what we have regarding viruses and venom is not our comprehensive theory. This is a theory that is subject to change as we learn more and discuss more about Venom because it's such a complex and lengthy top topic within the Twilight universe. So yes. just keep that keep that in mind, people. So in the in the process of replicating, viruses, like I stated before, release their genetic material into the host, right? Because of the chromosomal difference between vampires and humans that we discussed in the last episode, if you need a refresher, humans have 23 pairs, vampires have 25, and we, mm. don't, even need to, we don't even need to go into how many what werewolves have, <laughs> Carlisle. <laughs> Leave Jacob and Carlisle thieving out of this. It makes me too upset. <laughs> we know that something about the vampiric transformation alters the genetic material we somehow go we somehow get two extra pairs so if through the vampiric transformation vampires get two extra pairs of chromosomes and viruses function by hijacking the machinery of a cell in order to replicate their dna instead of the host cell's dna Mm -hmm. this extra genetic material could come from venom as a virus Mm -hmm. okay we know that something about the transformation alters the genetic material. We somehow have to increase by two pairs, right? Mm-hmm. So if the virus is injecting its own genetic material into a human as they're transforming, and venom is that virus, then because of the rapid rapid replication of the viral genetic material we could get from 23 pairs to 25 pairs if the virus has 25 pairs, 25 chromosomal pairs. 
We know the transformation process is agonizing, and we know that in the process of replicating, viruses will often damage the host cell, and this damage could explain the pain that a human will undergo as they transform, the host cell being the entire human body. Paige, do you have any contextual evidence? So in breaking down the book, As I told you in the last episode, it's actually told in three parts. The first is from Bella's perspective when she gets married and realizes she's pregnant. The middle when she's pregnant and gives birth is from Jacob's perspective. And then the rest of the book is again from Bella's. And when we return to Bella's perspective, the first whole chapter is her turning into a vampire. And it's, she talks a lot about the pain. There's a lot of different ways she's describing it. And to make matters worse, Edward had given her a bunch of morphine as, like, she was giving birth to Renesme and he was about to bite her. But what she says is that it did nothing to dull the pain. It was just as bad as she remembers it from when James bit her in the first book, except she was completely paralyzed. So she couldn't scream and she couldn't move. That's why everyone thought she was dead. (gasps) That's horrifying. Yeah, it's really awful. And at some point, she thinks to herself, which just like, oh my god, bullets straight through the heart. She says, at first, it was really awful because she couldn't tell like the passage of time because she couldn't see anything. And so she had no idea how long she was out. But then at some point, she gets lucid enough and she's like, actually, it's good. Because although this is terrible for me, now Edward doesn't know how bad it is. (gasps) Bella, no! I know! And then she like thinks to herself, she's like, at some point, she's going to have to tell Carlisle not to do this if he makes another vampire. But she's going to have to wait until Edward won't be in earshot when he can hear Carlisle. <gasps> no! <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. Ouch. <sighs> I just, they just love each other so much. <laughs> anyway. That is heart-wrenching. Wow. So she says that the pain, the pain was bewildering. Exactly that. I was bewildered. I couldn't understand, couldn't make sense of what was happening. My body tried to reject the pain, and I was sucked again and again into a blackness that cut out whole seconds, or maybe even minutes of the agony, making it that much harder to keep up with the reality. And she also calls it a burning, which we remember from when she was bitten by James. But here she says, like grabbing the wrong end of a curling iron, my automatic... No, Hannah, wait. My automatic response was to drop the scorching things in my arms, but there was nothing in my arms. The heat was inside me. And then she notices it beginning to fade, which marks the end of the transformation. So I guess the, the theory then would be that instead of killing the host, as viruses do in us if they spread far enough... <laughs> the damage from the virus replication process is recovered from by the change in genetic material. Mm -hmm. I think I understand where you're coming from. So basically the pain that you feel is because the virus is in fact doing damage to the host body. However, because of the inherent genetic material, what is sequenced within the genetic material of the virus aka the like the the ability to keep living right like the pursuit Mm -hmm. of living 
is the reason why when a human gets bit, they don't die. They just transform. Yeah, I think so. But Venom does not have this effect on everything. In the book, so little context, we're still in the third part of Breaking Dawn, but now Bella has woken up. She sees Renesme and she sees Jacob still there. And she has her whole, you named my daughter for Loch Ness Monster iconic, moment. Iconic, Yes. Um, and in the book, she lunges at Jacob and Seth, poor baby, jumps in the way to protect Jacob. And everyone after, or and then the book cuts. And after the fact, they tell Bella, it's, good thing, it's a good thing you didn't bite Seth because vampire venom quote or werewolves didn't react to vampire venom the same way humans did it was poison to them venom virus both mean poison yes but again sorry that has no relation i just i was like i don't know felt full circle to me (laughs) i mean venom literally means that if you bite something it dies So this is actually the exception to the usage of the word. (laughs) Um, But I just think this context is so funny because Bella literally is thinking to herself, she's like, oh, it's lucky I didn't bite Seth when he jumped in to protect Jacob because I would have killed him, LOL. (laughs) (laughs) Oops, my bad. And then I, I thought I remembered this from the books, but I couldn't find them in the books. I did find it in the illustrated guide, which we try not to use, but... Basically, only humans can be turned into vampires through venom. Venom kills animals. So, like, if the Cullens aren't hunting and they bite a deer and they get distracted and leave it, we, we don't get a vampire deer. That deer just dies. Which, honestly, kind of a bummer. Yeah, I, I think that would have been cool lore, but I also see that um, that could have been chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> just a little. <laughs> but... You know what? It would be it would be really good for humans in terms of just like soothing cognitive dissonance because they could just bite a lot of rare animals that are going extinct and then they'll never go extinct. Yeah, but I don't Vampires have more chromosomes than humans. I don't know that they're the same species. You know what? Right, but I'm saying because these animals would never go extinct, humans would probably find a lot of relief in that. Yeah, but like I'm saying, I think that, for example, if you if you bit, like, I don't know, what's an animal that's going extinct? Proboscis monkey. <gasps> Our lord and savior. Our lord and savior. Link in the description. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so if you bit a proboscis monkey and now we have a vampire proboscis monkey, I think if all the regular proboscis monkeys died... Proboscis monkey is still extinct. We have a new species now, vampire proboscis monkey. (laughs) (laughs) It has more chromosomes. (laughs) It's the ubermensch of proboscis monkey. (laughs) As if you could outrun them. (laughs) As if you could fight them off. They are the world's most dangerous proboscis (laughs) monkey. Apex predator, proboscis monkey. (laughs) You know what? Okay, I have two quick asides. My first one is that it's just sort of 
I'm kind of glad that within the official canon, animals can't become vampires or vampiric because oh, like a lot of these animals are vegetarians and it's really disturbing for me to think about like a, a carnivorous deer. Mm, yeah, I don't like that. My, yeah, not a fan. But my second, maybe more interesting thought is what if they could turn into vampires and we had the like a bunch of vampire proboscis monkeys? Who is the apex predator? <laughs> but they who would win in a fight? Edward or proboscis monkey vampire? Listen, listen. As we've seen in history, in the great um in the great emu war. <laughs> are not necessarily the apex predator <laughs> I have no shadow of a doubt in my mind that probus- vampiric proboscis monkeys would for sure win the fight <laughs> they are divine so I guess that makes sense. the longer the nose the closer to God exactly. as they say exactly. And sorry to anyone who wasn't previously aware of my cult, but you're part of it now. You've been indoctrinated. If humans can't beat big birds, if humans with, like, guns cannot beat these big birds, what makes you think that vampire humans could beat vampire proboscis monkeys? Humans with guns can't beat emus. And you know what? We went to the ostrich and emu farm in Solvang, and I buy that. Emus are vicious. Yeah, they are terrifying. Okay, so venom kills animals. Uh, and again, because of the gestures broadly, one of the things we were thinking is possibly that this is due to the challenges in viruses moving between species. Right. You want to tell us a little bit? Yeah. So in order for a virus to move between species, it has to overcome, you know, the hurdles that we talked about before, for instance, getting into the host cell, binding to the cell surface having matching proteins and receptors, entering cell, et cetera, et cetera. In a, um, but they have to overcome these hurdles in a completely different species, right? And dogs don't necessarily have the same proteins as humans. They don't necessarily have the same immune responses as humans. Yeah. I learned researching for this episode that dogs don't get the common cold. Which, good. Dogs yeah. don't deserve that. Um, viruses, RNA viruses are the best I <laughs> please don't please don't bomb on this podcast. Um, <laughs> RNA viruses are the best at overcoming these hurdles as as we may have seen in recent times. but but maybe not, maybe we haven't seen that. Can I read you a quote from an article from 2004? Yes, you can. Of greatest concern are the RNA viruses, which have developed several ways to adapt. RNA viruses, such as the Nipah virus? Nipah? 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 I don't know. It's none of my business. Hendra virus? (laughs) SARS coronavirus? Um, Ma'am. H5N1 influenza influenza A virus? and Ebola virus have all jumped from animals to humans, but have yet to achieve the next step of successful establishment. 
Just you wait. <laughs> oh, have yet to achieve, huh? I have yet to achieve. 2004 was a simpler time. 2004 was a simpler time. Yeah. My God. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you want to tell us why RNA viruses are yes. the perfect crime? <laughs> yes. However, I'm, I am a little traumatized by this quote. Sorry. It's a, it's okay. But I am traumatized. Oh my god, and this was before the Ebola outbreak of like, what was it, 2014? So I mean, this was before Ebola and this was before um, swine flu. Was it? It yeah. would have been like just before though. Yeah. Well, swine flu happened when I, when we were in like, like I want to say like fourth or fifth grade felt earlier to me but yeah i mean that would still only have been like five years yeah that's true <sighs> but still so, this article is very prescient a little too prescient yeah don't like thinking about it yeah rna viruses are like perfect at overcoming these hurdles because they don't really have any like proofreading mechanisms and so and they can introduce many mutations during replication so for a little bit of context when we replicate our own DNA, we naturally incur mutations. It's just because we have so many like binding pairs of DNA. And so naturally, you know, when you have so many things to code, a mistake will happen here and there. We have multiple mechanisms within our own body to repair these mutations. However, RNA viruses, they, do, they don't have these mechanisms to repair the mutations. They just let the mutations exist. RNA viruses are kind of like a quasi-species with slightly different genetic composition. It, it's, I don't like thinking about it. <laughs> I don't like thinking about this like variation. But because of that, yeah. they, um, can, they are allowed to be selective for their conditions. And those selective conditions will give them the opportunity to jump from a host to from one host to another, and that's how variations are made. So the argument that venom infects humans and differently from werewolves and animals because viruses react differently in different species doesn't really make sense here because venom does have the effect of doing great damage to animals and werewolves, which means that it's moving through their bodies, right? It's causing damage enough to kill them. Mm -hmm. So... I guess it, it's more that humans can overcome the damage caused by venom and werewolves and animals can't. So yes, but venom does work like a virus as well in animals and werewolves. Their host cells just can't recover from it the way humans can. They process it differently, which again makes sense it. because as we saw with, you know, Miss Coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> The way that we were affected by the virus is drastically different than the way, like, our pets were, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it is like interspecies virus is just doesn't, it, it has overcome the hurdles that you discussed. Yes. So, the last thing I want to mention is that there's, um, in the same chapter we've been discussing this whole time, when Bella is giving birth to an Esme and becoming a vampire, there's like a little detail 
which wasn't in the movie that I wanted to bring to our attention, which is that Bella has a lot of like physical injuries because remember she fell first. Mm-hmm. And also obviously giving birth results in some tearing. <laughs> <laughs> and you also got to remember Renesmee was not born through the like, was it vaginal channel? Uh-huh. She ate her way through Bella's stomach. Wait. Or Excuse rather. Me? Oh, I'm sorry. Was that not was that I'm... not known to you? <laughs> this was not made clear in the movies. You're telling me um, that Okay, so it's very subtle. You're telling me that Renesmee like C-sectioned herself? Okay, well let me rephrase that. Um so Renesmee didn't C-section herself. In the book, like, the other, um, I don't know, the other people like Renesmee, like the, the guy from Brazil, he mm-hmm. did. But because Bella fell, I'm remembering now the placenta detached, right? So Renesmee didn't, what Ed, but Edward had to. Because the amniotic sac was as strong as vampire skin. That's why Carlisle mentions really offhandedly in the movie that he can't, like puncture the amniotic sac to get any fluid which is why he doesn't know how many chromosomes Renesmee has before she's born so okay I'm still just kind of amazed of the level of detail (laughs) none of this stuff really had to be included (laughs) and yet yet Steph just really went for it yeah but in the movie so Edward gives Bella a c-section with his teeth. Yeah, Ew, and I don't God. know if you... It, I mean, it's sort of a small detail, but there's this moment where it's cutting between Bella's face and Jacob's face, and Edward ducks underneath, and he comes up with blood on his mouth. That's what he was doing. So I do remember... I do remember in the movies... I'm pretty sure there are, like, pretty explicit scenes of, like... Oh, you know what? I always assumed that it was because in the scene where she's dying and giving birth he goes around and bites in many different places in her body he's also and so that. i assumed that that's where the blood was coming from i wasn't mm-hmm. aware he was licking well this is the thing so he in order to address these wounds that the idea is that if she's too like injured venom may not be able to save her and so as he's going around and biting her, he's licking both the wounds that he's making, but also the ones from the C-section. And we get this quote. And this is from Jacob's perspective, which makes it grosser. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. I saw his pale tongue sweep over the bleeding gashes, but before this could make me either sick or angry, I realized what he was doing. Where his tongue washed, over the, washed the venom over her skin, it sealed shut. So, I mean, I don't have a ton to say about this, except that there's other properties of venom that we're going to have to discuss at some point, which is that it has the healing healing property. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, I think all those places where he's doing this, it's probably going to scar, like, her James bite. That's just a theory of mine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... That's where I want to leave us, that there's definitely more to discuss about Venom. This is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the way Venom is described in this series. 
honestly, it's a little, that's a little, that's a little vile, a little foul. (laughs) I don't like thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Stephanie Meyer really just threw some little things in there, like, totally quickly, and was just like, yeah, Yeah, I was going to lick the wounds. Why, why was this just, like, glazed over? Literally glazed over. (laughs) Oh no, 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 no. I gotta go, I gotta go. I don't On that know. <laughs> this has been Fang Theory. I'm Paige. And I'm Hannah. Tune in in two and weeks. We'll see you in two weeks. One provecho. <laughs> Maybe the real viruses were the friends we made along the way. <laughs> They're not the Spanish influenza. <laughs> like a good hedgehog, you farm is there. How do I know? Maybe if I had like 12% fewer gut microbes, I would feel differently about things. I think the Koch brothers are like so old that their image is public domain. <laughs> no flames, please. <laughs>